Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. All right, number nine. Once the final review of a book is complete, all right, so what was, ver- what was number eight? Every chapter had to be reviewed by every man in every company, right? Okay, now, ver- number nine, once the final review of a book is complete, it is to be sent to all other groups for critical review again. So once an entire book is complete, it is to be sent to the other groups for, and it was specific to say, critical review. This is hard to find in any, with any integrity, critical review. Um, people today, they're critics of people they hate. They're critical of things they disagree with. It's hard to get people to be critical in an honest fashion. You know, some of the, the work that I do, the writing that I do, the, the podcasts that I do, the ideas that I have. I have a friend... I can call him and I can tell him what my idea is and he will just tear it apart (laughs) for me because it would be easy for me to call 10 people who agree with everything I say and say, brother, that's just all wonderful. It's all great. You should just put that out for the world. It's hard to find someone that loves me that will say, brother, you didn't think that through enough. This is good, but this is not. You need to go back. You need to refine it. You need to make it better. So I don't want friends who are just going to come pat me on the back and tell me everything is wonderful and, and that everything I do is wonderful. That, that's, that's living in a bubble that eventually is going to burst and, and you're, you're going to be shattered. <laughs> what I want are people who are going to be honest and say, no, this needs to, that, that's what these men were. They were not trying to hurt each other, but they were very critical of the work they were doing. Because they wanted it done right. They wanted it to be better. And so it'd be good for you to make sure you have friends around you that won't tell you what you want to hear, but will tell you what you need to hear. And then you need to be willing to receive it. That's a biblical thing. That's, a, that's, that's Christian. The Christian life, we're not just going around and, and just patting each other on the back and saying, oh, you're fornicating last week. It's okay. God doesn't mind. No, you need to sit down. We need to have a talk. You got a problem, an ungodly problem that needs to be fixed. Uh, And it doesn't even have to be that extreme. It can be, uh, you know, I I teach the Bible. I want my brother to tell me, you've listened to, to what I've been teaching. What do I need to improve on? Everything you're doing is perfect. It's wonderful. Just keep doing it. Okay. You know, you have no suggestions. You have, you have no critical feedback that you could give me that would help me improve. You're just wonderful. You're a liar. 
You just don't want to tell me what I need to hear. So you want honest friends around you that will be direct with you. Now, you don't want people just tearing down everything you do. But you do want somebody who will come to you and say, Brother, I appreciate your zeal. I appreciate what you're trying to do. But this is where it needs to be corrected. Here's where it can be better. Here's where you can be better. Here's where you can be strengthened. You're making mistakes. You're not showing up. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. If you fix those things, you'll have a successful ministry. and You have a wonderful Christian life. If you don't, you're going to be a mess. I love you. I hope you don't leave. I hope you stick around. But I can't do anything with you. I need you to be faithful. I need you to be ready to, to take feedback. You know, uh, you just, my pastor, I've, I've told you here before, when, when my, I went to him with this idea about being a missionary in Uganda, Africa, in like 2016. And I sat down with him, and when I left the office, I just wanted to go hide in a corner and cry. <laughs> because he's, he's like, I'm excited for you, that's wonderful. There are a few things we need to talk about. Okay. (laughs) And he pointed out flaws in my character that needed to be fixed. And he wasn't going to send me out to churches to ask for money until those character flaws were taken care of. Or I could demonstrate I was moving in the right direction so that they were taken care of. And then I had to show him 12 months. I had to turn in a schedule for 12 months showing him what ministries I was in, when I was there, when I gave money to the church. He didn't want to know how much. He wanted to know I was giving. Could you imagine being a missionary who doesn't give? I need your church to give me money. Oh, do you give money at your church? No. (laughs) Okay, go home. You don't need to be a missionary. How is it that you, you don't give, but you expect people to give to you? That, that's, that's what you call, that's what you call incompetent. You're, you're, you're not fit to be a missionary. So no, we're not sending you out. I had to turn in 12 months of everything that when I was in Bible school, when I was in church, you know, when I was in ministries, what ministries I was in. I mean, all this information had to be turned in. And I could have said, I don't want to do all that. No problem. You don't have to. You don't have to do any of it. You can go right back to your pew and be a good church member and, and stay right here. Or you can toughen up, take the criticism, fix the problems, turn in the paperwork, and now I'm I'm a missionary in Uganda, Africa. It wasn't easy to hear, but it was necessary. And if you don't have someone who will have those types of conversations with you, they're not doing you a favor. They're not helping you by not telling you the things you need to hear. So if you... It's easy. What people do is they say, you know, these people like me over here. They, they always say nice things about me. They never, they don't care what I do. So I'm just going to stay over here. I mean, Monica is mean. Every time I ask her about something, she's critical, negative. So I'm just not going to go over there. Well, it might be that Monica is saying some things that I need to hear. Or it could just be that Monica is negative. <laughs> If she's saying things I need to hear, then I need to listen and I need to I need to take it into account. I need to work on it. But this is better heard from your pastor, from the missionaries who are around, from your brothers in the Bible school, from from brothers you serve Christ with. You need to be able to sit down with each other and say, "Okay, I I need I need you to give me an honest assessment of where I am and what I'm doing and how things are going. All right. That's what these guys did. They were critical. Again, they didn't just kick back and drink tea and, and you know, have some chicken and rice and, and uh, maybe we'll turn out a Bible every now and then or a chapter every now and then. No. These men were diligent. They were hardworking. They were focused. And then after doing all that work, they had to send it to somebody else who's going to rip it apart and send it back to you in pieces for you to put back together. And that's what, how you ended up getting your Bible. You need people like that in your life. And at times, you need to be that person, to be honest with other people. This is a problem in Ugandan culture. Everybody likes to just pretend like nothing is wrong. People know people in the church are committing open fornication and adultery and say nothing. They know people in the church owes half the church money and they say nothing. 
That's ungodly on your part and on their part. Now, you're not supposed to go around looking for things to tear people apart on. But when you see there are problems that, that will harm the name of Jesus Christ and will harm your testimony and the church's testimony and that person's testimony, you need to go say something. And Ugandans don't like to do that. Nobody likes to do it, but it's a big problem in Uganda. You'll have people here in open fornication, owing people money for years. And nobody says a word. That can't be. That should not exist. I don't care if it's your brother or your sister. If my brother's living in open fornication, he and I are going to have a talk. And it's not going to be a comfortable talk. And so, anyways, critical. The Bible expects us to be critical of each other in a good, constructive manner. The goal is to build people up, but in order to build something up, sometimes you've got to tear some part of it down, then build back something positive. So, so there you go. Number 10. Let me read this to you real quick on number 9. Each chapter was reviewed 7 to 10 times in one group. Then the final book of the Bible would be sent to the other groups for overall review. The book then would be reviewed five more times before this process was complete. Then in the end, the a final group, all right, so, so that's just these groups. After, after a book went through this entire process of being reviewed, it'd be set aside. And then when the entire Bible was done, the men were taken from each of these groups to form a final revision committee. And they went over the entire Bible, verse by verse, through the entire thing, until it had been reviewed through the final revision process. So they reviewed it, and they reviewed it, and they reviewed it, and they reviewed, and they reviewed, and they reviewed, until it was right. Which is, that is competence. <clears throat> Who wants to do that? Who wants to sit, and we're going to read this over and over and over? Yes. Not only are you going to do it, you're going to do it with a smile. And you're going to pay attention, and you're going to help me get it right. Otherwise, we're going to turn out to the world another failed project because we were too lazy to be competent. And that can't be. Not as long as I'm allowed to be a part of it. So, by the end, you may hate me, but you will have produced an accurate copy of the Word of God which is an unbelievable accomplishment. <clears throat> and it has to be done right. Number 10. During review. We talked about it a little bit already, but it's actually a rule. Unsatisfactory translations were sent back. And they had to be fixed. So during review, if any unsatisfactory translations, uh, translation is found, it is to be noted and returned to the company from where it came to be reviewed and corrected as necessary by them. Now, let's say you didn't agree. If the two companies cannot agree on the translation... Then a review board was assembled of the head of each group. So the head of each group would come together. Six men would come and they would review the, the, the argument and they would make a decision who was right and who was wrong. And that would, be, that would be the final, how it would turn out. Then after that was done, it'd be sent back to all the groups for review again. <laughs> so it's not that we got six men they're going to make the final decision, and that's it. No, they made the final decision on this discussion. Now that that's complete, send it back to all of them so it can be reviewed again to make sure everybody is in agreement that it says what it's supposed to say. How would you like your work scrutinized to that level? What if we took, it, we took your work, your preaching, your, your, your uh, soul winning, your, your job, whatever it is, and we, and we examine it to that, to that level. 
How would it turn out? <laughs> uh, so, so this is a summary of that process of, of number 10. There were six companies. They were given certain portions of the Bible to translate, and we're going to talk about that. Their <coughs> translation work would be reviewed by each member of their group. Then it would be sent to the company. So the Westminster Company, the Cambridge Company, or the Oxford Company. So, so these two groups at each location is called a company. <clears throat> All right, so it would then be sent to the company, that, uh, that is the Westminster, Cambridge, or Oxford Companies, After that review was complete, it would be sent to the other companies. So it just kept passing it around. Uh, If it started at Oxford, it would then be sent to both Cambridge and Westminster for review. If it passed all these reviews, then it would be set aside for the final review committee who reviewed all the books of the Bible as a whole in the end. And that's some, those are strong checks and balances. They're, they're, They're paying attention to what they're doing. They're focused. All right, number 11. Difficult passages to translate. This is how they dealt with them. If any passage presents difficulty beyond the ability of or understanding of the translators, letters were to be sent to any man in the country capable of of assisting. So if there's any man in all of England who could shed some light on a difficult passage because of his experience, because of his uh, uh, ability with the language, maybe he owns a copy of one of these texts, maybe he's, he's done some translation work in the past, whatever, If they think that man can answer some questions that will help you properly translate this, send letters to him, go see him, do whatever is necessary to get the information you need to make it right. That means that the king made every man in the country available to the King James translators. And what what some of them did was, I mean, you've already got the greatest collection of, of intellects with Westminster, Oxford, and Cambridge. So you know who these men are. They attend these churches. They attend these universities. Uh, they're related to them somehow. So you know who they are. And, and so you have access to them when you need them. Imagine getting one of those letters. <laughs> like, these guys don't know how to translate it, and you want me to help you? <laughs> okay. <laughs> you asked for it. Number 12. And this, it's related to number 11, but the bishops, we talked about it a little bit last week, in, in, the, in all these companies and in this meeting at Hampton Court uh, uh, with King James, you have the Puritans and the bishops. The king loved the bishops because they were more favorable to government control over the church. He hated the Puritans because they didn't want any government control over the church. But if you were going to have a church, it had to be part of the King of England, or you were called a nonconformist preacher, and there were lots of them, and you'd be jailed, persecuted, exiled, all, all sorts of things. I, I've told you a little bit about Samuel Rutherford. He, he was a nonconformist preacher. They removed him from his home, his city, and his church. And they sent him to, to a town that they made for nonconformist preachers to live, and they were not allowed to leave that town. If they left the town, they were not allowed to go into a city, and they couldn't go near other churches. They had all these rules on them that they had to follow. They were basically in prison in a town. <laughs> you couldn't leave that town. So if you didn't conform to the Church of England, you were called a nonconformist, and, and you were persecuted for not, being, for not conforming to the Church of England. You didn't have a choice. We have some similar problems all around the world today. You know, if let's say I want to be a missionary in Malaysia. I love Malaysia. I've been there a couple of times. I've been to Kuala Lumpur. 
But same way in Egypt, when I lived in Egypt, if you want to be a missionary in that country, you want to start a church, you're required to find a church or a denomination recognized by the government, and you have to start all your churches under that denomination. That's basically what these people are having to do. The king said, I'm head of the church in England, so you're going to do what I say. So the Puritans and the bishops are trying to function under this you know, this government that's dominating the church. The Puritans are giving the government a hard time because they don't want to be part of this. And the bishops are saying, we think it's godly for the king to be in charge of the church, so it's okay. Now this, this idea, that was okay for a while. <laughs> and then the king realized the church could be a good political tool, and, and the Church of England went way off course, ended up, ended up being just a reprobate useless organization. The Puritans, however, guess where they ended up? Hmm? The United States of America. They left England and landed on Pilgrim's Rock and started colonies in America so that they could try and establish a country, a place where they could have religious freedom to worship as they please. And ended up creating the freest country in the world what used to be the freest country in the world. We'll see how that goes in the next few years. All right, so the bishops were given this rule, number 12. They were to inform their people. All right, so they're heads of these large churches. They've got access to all the people uh, from their people of, of all the work presently at hand. All right, so they were to keep their people informed of what they were translating, what they were working on at the moment. And the reason for that, I'll read it to you. The bishops were to inform their people of the work presently at hand, and anyone in their congregations who has any information, understanding, knowledge of tongues, anything that would be helpful, they were to send a letter explaining all they know to that particular company. So the bishop would go and say, We've got this group working on the book of Ezra, and uh, they're struggling with something. I know that you have some information on that. You need to sit down and write a letter describing everything you know about that, and then I will take it to that company so they can use it and help them translate. They had access to everybody, anybody and everybody who would have any information that would help them produce an accurate translation of the Bible. What translation group since then has had that? There's not one. You literally have all of England, the most powerful country in the world, at your fingertips at that time. Whatever you need, you tell the government and they're going to make sure it happens. And it did. Number 13. Number 13 was the directors. It appointed... Directors. So in, in these groups, you had uh, presidents and directors. And so they, these are the people that are in charge of the company and then each group within the company. So, so you have both the 13th appointed these leaders. 14. Um, 14 names five other texts. That could be used in the translation work. Now, these were these were five other um, mostly English Bibles. Not all of them were. So, you had Tyndale's work, Tyndale's Bible. You had the Matthew's Bible. You had the Coverdale Bible. You had the Great Bible, and you had the Geneva. These rules, so they're, they're, these are the rules that they had to follow, all right? And these rules, they, they prevented these men from, from, again, just running away with their own ideas. Because these, these guys come from very different backgrounds. The Puritans are very Presbyterian in nature. There's a lot of Calvinism here. Um, the, the bishops, many of the bishops were Armenian in their, in their doctrine. And so uh, there's the potential for that to be introduced. 
Um, the, the, the bishops believe heavily that the government should be in charge of, of your church, where the Puritans don't believe the government should have nothing to do with your church. And following these rules prevented any of these men from interjecting their own doctrine into the Bible. They were not allowed to do it. Just, it just couldn't be done. Under these rules, under the, revision, the, the reviews that had to be done, the scrutiny, the criticism, all that had to be done, and it prevented them from being able to just make up some new book. And it, and it seems like it would be a good idea to let them do that. But the Puritans and the bishops hated each other. They were constantly going to the king and trying to, to play the government against each other. So if they didn't have these rules, what would they have been able to accomplish? I mean, it, it wouldn't have been good. And so these rules kept them, they put reasonable limitations on them and gave them reasonable freedom to do what they needed to do, both at the same time. Right? So I, I, when I look at the, some of these rules, I'm like, man, that, some of that would have been very difficult to, to maintain. You know, you're trying to translate the Bible and you want me to make it accurate, but I got to keep it the same as the, the bishop's Bible that we all know has problems. Why would you make me do that? Well, it's... it's it's like they put a, you ever seen one of those, um, the ball and chain you put around your ankle? So, so that it's, it's, it's meant so that you can have freedom to move around, but you can't go too far with a ball and chain on your foot. <laughs> or you can't go too fast. So if you try to get away, it's easy for them to catch you because you've got, you got this piece of metal chained to your, your foot and it's got a big heavy ball at the end. So you're like moving around like, like this. So they have the freedom to go where they want with some limitations. That way things don't get out of control. Does that make sense? Yes. Now we're going to talk about the King James translators. Number one, Lancelot Andrews. He was a bishop. So our brand of Christianity it makes it difficult to like guys like this. <laughs> how, could you, how could you ever agree that the government should take control of your church? I, I, don't, I don't understand how you could... I mean, this guy was brilliant. He was known as one of the best preachers of his day and of his time. And yet, he thought the government should take over his church. Now, he got to preach for the king and enjoyed a great life because of that. He was born in 1565. I'm going to tell you, as we name each man, I'm going to tell you what group he was in and what that group translated as we go through it. He was appointed one of the first Greek scholars of Pembroke Hall. Now, listen to this. This is Lancelot Andrews, okay? Once per year, usually at Easter, he would take a one-month vacation with his parents. During that month, he would find a teacher of some language, and he would learn the language in one month on vacation. And, 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 in, and in this way, learned most of the European languages. We're talking about the qualifications and the competence of the King James translators. Now, would you want me standing here saying, this word in the Greek, and you know, the translators messed this up. Or would you listen to a man who once a year would learn an entirely new language in one month. Uh, in this way, he learned nearly all the major languages of Europe. He was chaplain for both Queen Elizabeth as well as King James. Queen Elizabeth made him Dean of Westminster. During the translation of the Bible, he was made, the he was made head of the first company at Westminster. He was often called... Oh, they, they were assigned... Their assignment was... Genesis to Second Kings. It's often said that Genesis to Second Kings, as far as translation work, is some of the greatest work done in the Bible. And you can imagine if a guy like that is head of it all, it would be. <clears throat> um, he is often called the star of preachers. His Bible teaching and his godly counsel were highly sought after. Throughout his life, 
Lancelot Andrews proved to be an unbelievably capable linguist as well as a godly man. The, the, the guy is incredible. He's not a... Even amongst the 47 men used, he's head and shoulders above them. I mean, we're talking about unbelievable linguistic scholars. This guy is just a freak of nature. And so is John Reynolds. We're going to talk about him in a second. We talked about him briefly the other day. Um, his pri- he is well known for his daily devotions, both privately as well as with his family. His private devotions were kept in a handwritten journal. They were all done in Greek. <laughs> he's, he's English. He speaks English. But he gets up to do his journal, his, his daily devotions every day, and he does it all in Greek. It's, it's like it's just nothing for him. <clears throat> he was called... Now, again, before I tell you this, I want you to think about the men you have met, heard, seen, listened to, whatever, who said you need Greek in order to understand this Bible. The translators made mistakes. All right, And I'm here. I'm going to fix the mistakes. Thank, thank God you have me and my Greek concordance. All right. This is what's said of Lancelot Andrews. Where, where was I? Um, he is called the great gulf of learning. What, what did Abraham tell the rich man? He said, I can't come between you because this great gulf is between us. Right? Well, people said of Lancelot Andrews, he's a great gulf of learning. He's so intelligent. He's so well learned. It's like a great gulf between me and him. (laughs) And so when I stand in a pulpit and say, Lancelot Andrews made a mistake here, but I'm going to fix it. Yeah, you might want to shut up. You might want to tone that down a little bit and not say things like that out loud. This man said that about Lancelot Andrews, the world lacked the learning to understand how learned he is. You don't even know enough to understand how much he knows. Yes. The world lacked the learning to understand how learned this man is. The world, he said the world, not you, the world, didn't have enough knowledge to understand how knowledgeable that man was. And you want to correct him? You want to stand in your pulpit and say, Lancelot Andrews really messed up Genesis, (laughs) but I'm going to fix it for him. Uh, I beg you to Last time, the world lacked the learning to understand how learned this man was. Another man. Listen to this. Here's another statement about him. Another man said he was so skilled in language, if he had been present at the Tower of Babel, he could have been interpreter general. (laughs) He could have interpreted for everybody. (laughs) Yes. They were these were statements made at his death, and they were trying to do their best to explain to you how unbelievably intelligent and knowledgeable Lancelot Andrews was. All right, it is estimated, estimated, because all you have is an estimation when you have a guy like this. It is estimated that he was fluent in at least fifteen languages, a minimum of fifteen languages, probably more but they don't know how many. A man who could take one month every year for however long he did that and just learn an entire language in one month. 
They know he was, he was fluent in at least 15 languages. That's the kind of guy I want translating my Bible. That's why this book is so special. It wasn't just some, you know, guy who likes to, you know, th- this is what's so mind boggling. The people today who stand in pulpits and tell you the King James Bible is wrong. Do you know what do you, you know what the extent of their knowledge is? They took one or two semesters of Greek in a college. And now they have the authority to tell Lancelot Andrews he doesn't know what he's talking about. Like, you better sit down and be quiet before you have to meet Lancelot Andrews and he starts speaking to you in Greek and you're like, oh, I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> no, you don't know what he's saying. But he knows what he's saying. He did his daily devotions in Greek. You have a concordance. All right, Edward, Edward Lively, he was said to be the best linguist in the world. Um, I don't have that date. I don't have that year. It'd be easy to find, but I didn't write it down. Lively. He was among the second company at Cambridge. Second company at Cambridge. They were given First Chronicles to Song of Solomon. He was a student and then soon after a professor at, at Cambridge College. He was the king's professor of Hebrew. So when the king needed anything in Hebrew, that's the man he went to. He was heavily relied upon in the translation work. He was regarded as being highly skilled. Now, it was said of him he's the best linguist in the world. And he worked right across the hall from this guy. So you see the caliber of people that that worked on your Bible. These are not just everyday, I guess I'll quit my job and try to figure out how to put something from Greek into English. No, these, this is their life. This is what they do. This is who they are. Um, he was instrumental in making all preliminary preparations for the translation work. So as they're getting ready to start the translation work, he, he got the plans together. He set things in motion, set things up. He, he was in any preparatory work that needed to be done, he took care of it. But, but, he died in 1605, one year into the translation work. Um, Some believe uh, his overbearing attention to detail in the preparatory, preparatory stages may have caused his untimely death. He, he put so much into this that it ended up killing him, is what they believe. He, he was so dedicated to what he was doing. He didn't, well, I'm just going to take a day off. I'm tired. No, he literally worked himself to death in order to help get this Bible done. He's not anymore. So he, he died in 1605. They believe it's because of his, his work. Uh, His previous labors included a Latin exposition of the minor prophets. (laughs) So he's going to write a commentary on the minor prophets, and he wrote it in Latin. He didn't write it in English or even Greek. He wrote it in Latin, you know, the dead language that apparently nobody uses. Um, he, He also authored a Latin work of chronology through the Bible, He was said to be one of the greatest Hebrew scholars to live. So if I want to have if I have a question about the Hebrew portions of my Bible, guess who I want working on it? Not some guy standing in a pulpit today who couldn't speak a word of Hebrew or even recognize it if he saw it. (laughs) All right, next. Number three. John Reynolds was the man God used to bring this work before the King of England. All right, so thanks to John, thanks to just just a a happen chance conversation between John Reynolds and the King, we have a King James Bible. He's the man that is credited at Hampton's Hampton's Court Conference with with putting this idea in the King's head, and the King said, "You know, I hate the Geneva Bible." 
yeah, let's make a new Bible. <laughs> that was it. Everything else the, the Puritans asked for, the king said, no. No, you're not, we're not giving it to you, and you're going to do this instead. Well, it'd be good if we had a Bible. You know, that sounds like a good idea. Okay. The one thing he gave the Puritans at that meeting was the translation of a Bible. Praise the Lord. He was part of the third company at Oxford. They were given Isaiah to Malachi. He was born in 1549. By age 13. What, what, what were you doing at age 13? Anybody want to talk about that right now? Yeah. By age 13, he entered Merton College, Oxford. In 1562. He was 13 years old. He entered Merton College, Oxford. Thirteen years old, and he's in university. And and not not they didn't make like a special kitty program for him. He's in university. <laughs> so that's what they do today. They say, you know, we're going to have men and women both fight in the military. Here's the women's training, and here's the men's training. Very different, but they're both in the military. No, he was in college. <laughs> He would spend all day on campus learning. He loved it. By 1566, he was made fellow at Corpus Christi. He was 17. Now, I don't know if you know what that means. When, some, when they make you a fellow of a college, you're, you're essentially, as an alumni, you're a trusted member that they want on hand so that they can refer to you to, to be part of think tanks or research or you know, all sorts of things that, 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 that could happen. At 17, the college is saying, you're staying here. We want you here. We don't want you leaving. 17, he was a champion of the Reformation. So he played a major role in helping move the Reformation along in uh, England. He was a very able preacher. Uh, lots of people wanted to come here and preach. He was unbelievably successful at theological debate. I didn't write down a lot of the debates. I will cover it on the podcast when I do more in-depth review of these guys. But he would embarrass people in debates. They did not want to face him. Or if they did, they found out quickly they made a big mistake. He determined to be an expert in the original languages of the scripture. He also read all the works of the Latin fathers in Latin. He didn't say, who, who are the Latin church fathers? Let me find a good English translation of their work. No, he just read it in Latin, which was the language they wrote it in. Like I've, I've read books by Russian authors, by German authors. One of my favorite Bible writers is a German from the 15, 1600s, I believe. It's been a while since I've looked at it. It's in English. <laughs> I didn't go get a German copy and try to read it. It wouldn't, I, I, it wouldn't benefit me. This man would sit down and read it in Latin. His memory was considered... Oh, this definitely is not me either. This is his memory. All right. They said it was nearly miraculous. He was spoken of... They called him a living library. And if that didn't work, they said he was a third university. They said he's a living library. Imagine that. People see you come in, and in their minds, a library is walking towards them. John Reynolds labored in the work of translating the Bible until he died of consumption, also known as tuberculosis, in 1607. He unfortunately was one of the men that died early. But listen to this. His fellow translators, while he was on his deathbed, would arrange a meeting at his house at least once per week to review the translation work with him. 
He worked on the translation literally until he died. This way he could continue, they could continue to include him. They would read to him the work they had accomplished, and then they would allow him to provide feedback. At his death, this is what men said about him. He was enormously great at learning. Enormously great. To be enormous means huge, massive, big. So if something is enormous, it's, it's bigger than big. It's enormous. So they're saying he's enormously great at learning. They said he was most excellent at all tongues. He was a prodigy in reading. A prodigy, if you're a prodigy, it means you so excel at it that, that people believe it's, it's, you're like a freak of nature. A prodigy means most excellent at all tongues and a prodigy in reading. P-R-O-D-I-G-Y. <laughs> you don't have a miraculous memory, do you? So a pro- if, you're, if you're a prodigy, so th- they often use it with sports or musicians. Someone, like if you have a five-year-old who can play in an orchestra because they're so good, that they call him a child prodigy because he's just unbelievably good. Uh, if you have an athlete that is just way better than everybody else, I don't mean he's good, I mean he makes everybody else on the field look stupid. He's considered a prodigy. If you have uh, sometimes, like, oh, if he, today when you have a child enter university at 13, they say that he's a child prodigy because his mind is so advanced and so good at learning that, that it, he, he's, he's a prodigy. So he's like miraculous. It's, it's unreal. And then finally, I'll give you this. It's a long statement, so just listen. He was most excellent in all tongues, useful or ornamental to a divine. He had a sharp and ready wit, a grave and mature judgment, and he was extremely industrious. He worked. He didn't just work. He worked unbelievably diligently. So extremely industrious means you never saw him sitting around doing nothing. He was working. He was diligent. Yes, so any, any language you could think of that would be useful to a preacher or to a, a, uh, like a Christian intellectual, he mastered all of them. Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Sy- you know, Syrian, uh, you know, whatever. Any language that would... What's that? Aramaic, yeah. But do you think? But do you do you think God didn't know that? So so at, at what other time could you get a collection of guys like this to sit down and work on a Bible? It's not going to happen. And it took a king to tell them you're doing it because they're all busy. Uh, last week we talked about Lancelot Andrews. He had like 15 titles, which means he had 15 different positions that he was all responsible for, and these weren't just honorary titles. It was work. You, you could, he was never married. If, if he was, you'd never see him. He's just working, working, working. So how are you going to, uh, Lancelot Andrews, we'd like you to stop everything you're doing and come help us work on a Bible. No, I'm busy. But if the king comes in and says, you're doing it. Yes, sir. All right. So next is Greg or George Abbott. He came from a family that suffered cruelty from Roman Catholicism. He was part of the fourth company at Oxford, George Abbott. They translated the four Gospels, the book of Acts, and Revelation. He was born in 1562. By age 14, he was a student at Balliol College. Uh, Oxford, 14 years old. He's in university. He progressed quickly in his career. He established schools and, and published many works in Latin. The king was so pleased with him, he helped him quickly attain the position of Archbishop of Canterbury. 
That's a, in England, that's a big deal. To be Archbishop of Canterbury is a, is, a, is a huge achievement. It's almost like being Pope, but they don't have a Pope. Uh, at his death, he was noted as a great preacher and an unbelievably learned man. We got two more guys. We'll try to get through the two, and then we will finish. Next is number five, William Barlow. He was president of the fifth company. Abbey was in the fourth company at Oxford, right there. Uh, he is said to be a thoroughbred scholar, and his work was excellent. So you, you use the word thoroughbred referring to horses. If you have a thoroughbred horse, it means it's bloodline, it's, it's power, it's beauty, it's perfect. I mean, it's, it's a, if it's a thoroughbred, everybody wants to bring their horse to you to, to breed with it because it's perfect. It's, it's, a, it's, it's everything you're looking for in a horse. So if this man is a thoroughbred scholar, he's everything you're looking for in a scholar. He's, he's, he, he's perfect in that work. He published many books in various language, languages, all of which are of high caliber. And uh, he died in 1613. All right, this next one is an important one. Number six, John Boy. He descends from a very learned father who was himself a minister. I can't believe I didn't write down the other company. He was part of the sixth company at Cambridge. They met at uh, Cambridge College. They were, they were responsible for translating the Apocrypha, unfortunately. This guy would have been better used elsewhere, though he was. He was used in many different places, but he was given the Apocrypha. Uh, <coughs> The Apocrypha was not considered scripture. It was added for political reasons. The, the Catholic Church had infiltrated the Church of England uh, when it comes to Cambridge, Oxford, and Westminster. Their Jesuits had gotten into those colleges. They had an ear with the king. And so the king knew if he didn't add the Apocrypha, they were going to cause him a lot of problems. So he put it in the center between Malachi and Matthew. <laughs> they wanted it dispersed throughout the Bible as though it were scripture. And the translators said, no, we'll translate it and we'll put it in the center between Malachi and Matthew so people know it's not part of the Bible, but it's there so that you don't throw a fit and cause problems. The Apocrypha was not considered scripture. It was added for political reasons. The Catholic Church, they, they had lobbyists within England who would lobby the king in hopes of pursuing Catholic-friendly laws. Well, the king was not very happy with the Catholic Church, so it didn't work, but he couldn't ignore them because they could cause a lot of problems for him. They could stir up riots. They can, you know, they could cause a lot of issues. So the Apocrypha was added in between so that you knew it was not Scripture, but it made the Roman Catholics happy that it was there. And so that in that way, the king could make everybody happy. Uh, the work on this translation, uh, just as the work on the Textus Receptus, angered friends of Catholicism. So to try and, try and calm this storm, they added the Apocrypha in the center of the KJV, but they would not disperse it throughout the Scripture. Every time someone tried to bring about a genuine copy of God's Word in any language, the Catholic Church immediately got up in arms. They are opposed to God's Word. So if you get God's word in people's hands, they can't come and tell you, brother, I know, you're, I know you're, your sister died. She's in purgatory right now, but we can get her out if you bring us the money. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> so you go and you tell a bunch of poor Africans who can barely feed themselves on a daily basis, I'm sorry your mother died, but if you bring, bring us the money, we can, help, we can help get her out of purgatory. Or we can at least take a couple thousand years off. And you really love your mother, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but not you. So, or imagine, I, I have the ability to save your soul if you would just let me baptize you. 
That'll just be 50,000 shillings. That's all. I can help you escape hell by baptizing you if you just bring me the money and all will be well. A bunch of crooks. That's, that's who you're dealing with. So John Boy and his company responsible for that translation work. Uh, he was born in 1560. His mother, now, again, you have to listen to this. Whether you believe it or not, I, I don't care. <laughs> it's, a, it's historical documentation. But this is the man's childhood. He was born in 1560. His mother loved to read the Bible in older translations. He was carefully taught by his father. By age five, he could read the Bible in Hebrew with understanding. An Englishman reading Hebrew at age five and understands what he's reading. And so I'm going to come and I'm going to tell a guy like that, you know, you made some mistakes in your translation work. And he's going to say, you know, (laughs) shut up. (laughs) You don't know what you're talking about. And it'd be best to just leave that type of work to a man like that. By age six, (laughs) he could read and write in Hebrew with perfect. And this is what the book said. Perfect and beautiful handwriting. He didn't just know how to write it. Apparently, his penmanship was beautiful and perfect in Hebrew. What were you doing at age six? Halfway through his first year of college at Cambridge, he demonstrated great skill in Greek writing. He would often be found at the university library at 4 a.m. and he would stay until 8 p.m. every day. So how much time do you spend studying? Now, he's got the same amount of time every day that you have. He was a lecturer of Greek for 10 years at at the university level. During that same time, he would lecture those who were willing at 4 a.m. each morning. So he's teaching Greek all day, but if you want to learn more, you can come to his office at 4 a.m. and he'll teach you more on a one-on-one basis. He himself would attend weekly lectures on Greek and Hebrew for his own continued learning. Could you imagine being the man teaching Greek and Hebrew and that guy sitting in your class? He would meet with around 12 neighboring ministers to answer their questions and give advice on a weekly basis. He would do this for them. During the translation work, John Boy pulled double duty. Imagine that. A guy who works from 4 a.m. to 8 p.m. pulled double duty during the translation work. He not only helped finish the Apocrypha, but his assistance was also needed to help the second company at Cambridge finish First Chronicles through Song of Solomon. So he helped these guys finish their work as well. Uh, oftentimes when, when someone died or had to drop out, they were rarely replaced. Sometimes they were, but it was rare. So these guys would move around and help in other places. Um, and John Boy had no problem with that. He was also one of the 12 chosen to labor over the final review of the King James Bible. John Boy was said to be one of the most ingenious and most learned. Not only learned, he was ingenious. He was a genius. He didn't just have a high level of education. He had a high level of ability. All the way into old age, he spent at least eight hours per day in deep study. His notes are said to contain as many leaves of paper as the number of days he had lived. He left behind a Latin commentary of the Gospels and the book of Acts. He was said to be so familiar with the Greek New Testament, he could turn to any word at any time and give a full explanation. Can you do that to your English Bible? You could, if you put the effort into it. It's just what's important to you. Football, Bobby Wine, <laughs> Posho. You, you have the same opportunity today that they have. You have the same hours, the same opportunity. Most of these men worked far more than you do in a day at a job for the king. And they were still able to do these things. These men didn't just, they, they didn't not have jobs and wives and families. Some of them didn't have wives, but... They had, in fact, the ones who didn't have wives tended to take on far more work. And they were still able to live life like this and accomplish these things. 
We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.